Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. Well, I like to say it adds in human factors that can often easily be forgotten. How passable was the terrain? Was it steep and wooded? Were they good roads or bad roads? And what was the weather like? That's Journal of the American Revolution editor Don N. Hagist discussing weather phenomenon that changed the American Revolution. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode of Dispatches is sponsored by Simon & Schuster, publisher of Liberty is Sweet, The Hidden History of the American Revolution by Woody Holton, available now wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Journal of the American Revolution editor, Don Hagist, and he's going to be discussing weather patterns that change the revolutionary history. You know... Don Hagist is is a wonderful scholar, author of many books, studying the British soldier experience in the Revolution. But he also does these really fun, thought-provoking articles in the form of top ten lists for the Journal of the American Revolution. And they're always very interesting, uh, and always things I've never thought about. How weather affected the Revolution? One of his best yet. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Don Hagist. Don Hagist, welcome back. Thank you, Brady. It's good to be here, and always happy to talk about things with you. Don, remind us about your background. Okay, well, the the relevant background for right now is that I'm the editor, or managing editor, of the Journal of the American Revolution. And in that role, I get at least a passing glance at everything that we publish, my own expertise is on studying the demographics of the British Army during the war, so it's a pretty narrow focus. But, but in the role of editor, I see articles on all kinds of different things about the American Revolution. I've learned so much from it and, and gotten quite a diverse background just from the many wonderful contributions that people send into us. How can historians study something as unpredictable as the weather? Well... At JIR, we love lists. Um, you know, we got a lot of very detailed academic articles about a lot of different subjects, but we like to have a balanced content. We like to have a lot of things that are quick and easy to read, and there's nothing like a good top 10 list to do that. So every once in a while, I and other people on the editorial staff will just sit and brainstorm different possibilities for articles like this one. And then I scribble out a few notes, and it sits aside for a while and it comes back to the surface and I add a few more notes and it, it sort of coalesces over time. So for this particular one, I don't remember, it was years ago, the article came up, top 10 weather interventions. And I want to think, well, weather is always an important factor in military operations. But there are times when unexpected changes in the weather really disrupt a particular operation. The 
the weather changes the game on a particular day. So it wasn't like what are the most important weather events that happened during the revolution altogether. We could look at things like the hard winter in Morristown in 1780, for example, or there was a big hurricane in the Caribbean that had one of the highest death rates of any hurricane on record. But I wanted to look and say, which weather events changed something that was going on right when it happened? It disrupted something. So that's what I looked at when I said the top 10 weather interventions, as opposed to just the the biggest weather events of the war. Don, how do you determine if weather was enough of a factor to make it onto your list? Well, the, the straightforward process, I had a few individual cases in mind straight away. And so then I had to look for additional cases to come up with a list of 10. But one of the ones that I always keep in mind in particular, because I'm a native Rhode Islander and I study the events in Rhode Island a great deal, people who know the revolution well will know that um, there was a British garrison occupying the island that we call Newport, which at the time was called Rhode Island in Narragansett Bay for three years. And in 1778, the first joint French-American operation was to try to capture that garrison from the British, try to retake that island. What the French contributed was a strong naval force to this, and the Americans contributed a, uh, a, a land force to it. The British Navy challenged the French fleet. And the two fleets were squared off for battle. And this would have been a big humdinger of a naval battle. Would have been the first major battle between British and French forces during the war. It would have been an epic naval battle. And as the two fleets were squaring off and each one moving around, sailing this way and that, trying to get in the weather advantage, a hurricane came along. Now, some people interpret it as a northeaster in some of the hurricanes. We don't have really precise measurements of wind speeds and what have you. But no matter how you categorize it, it was a really big storm, and it scattered the two fleets. So the ships bobbing all over the Atlantic Ocean, you know, dozens of miles off the coast of New England. Over the next several days, as the weather gradually cleared, individual ships were trying to find their way back to rallying points. French ships were trying to get back to Rhode Island, British ships trying to get back to New York, New York. a number of little individual one-on-one or one-on-two naval engagements occurred during those days. But this big naval battle that was just about to happen totally got eliminated by the intervention of the weather. And that was the kind of event I wanted to look for. Where was a case where there was some big battle about to happen and the weather completely changed the way things went, either prevented this event from occurring or in some cases allowed the event to occur in a very different way than the commanders possibly could have expected. What are some instances of meaningful weather in 1775? Well, the one that I picked out for that year actually occurred on the very last day of that year. Um, we all know that American forces, I'm, now I'm using the terms American and British here as the two sides. I know it was really a little more nuanced than that, but for simplicity, we're going to say the war was Americans fighting British, just to make it easy to talk about here. British held 
Quebec, which was the principal city in Canada. If you hold Quebec, you hold Canada. Um, Americans attacked Quebec in 1775. They sent a large expedition there. It was early in the war, so the British didn't have a large number of forces in North America yet. They were working on that, but it was taking a while. In the meantime, Americans send a large force. They besiege Quebec, and they want to attack the city. But Quebec is not an easy city to attack. Um, just geographically, it's in a great location for defense. And a lot of the American troops had enlisted to stay in the army through the end of the year. And by the time the Americans were ready to really think about attacking the city, it was really close to the end of the year. And in fact, push really came to shove. They had to make an attack on December 31st, 1775. It was truly a now or never case because all the American enlistments, a large number of them were going to run out and the soldiers wanted to get home because it's the onset of winter. If they don't march back home to New England or New York or Pennsylvania, wherever they were from, soon they weren't going to get there at all. So they tried to mount this attack in the middle of the night and a blinding snowstorm hit that night. And as if it wasn't difficult enough to attack Quebec already, this snowstorm made the conditions almost impossible for the attackers. Meanwhile, the defenders, they're in a city. They've got shelter. They've got static positions. They don't have to do much more than wait to be attacked. And, uh, and we're able to suppress this attack very handily and very um, decisively. So I looked at that as a weather intervention. If it had been a nice, clear night, good weather conditions, the Americans may have been able to launch a much more formidable attack. And again, during this era, there was no way to predict what weather was coming. You just had to deal with whatever weather you got. Well, the first one I chose happened in Boston or in the Boston area. Most people are familiar with the idea that Boston was a peninsula. The British garrisoned it. Americans had surrounded it. There was a stalemate through the winter of 1775 and 1776. But Americans had captured a great deal of heavy artillery at Fort Ticonderoga and over the winter managed to move it to the Boston area. There was a, there was, it's still there, a prominence called Dorchester Heights that sticks off the mainland and overlooks downtown Boston. Now, during that time, Boston was a peninsula, so it was separated from this prominence of Dorchester Heights. But if you had some pretty big, long-range artillery and you put it on Dorchester Heights, you could bombard Boston and bombard ships in the harbor, which is exactly what the Americans intended to do with all of this new heavy artillery they got from Fort Ticonderoga. So in March of 1775, right at the beginning of the month, or 1776 rather, at the beginning of the month, the cannons from Fort Ticonderoga arrived. The Americans knew they needed to emplace them on Dorchester Heights. So emplacing heavy guns is a lot of work, takes a lot of preparation of the ground. The British got wind that this was going on and knew that they had just a very short window of time to seize Dorchester Heights. If they could 
take the place with infantry before the British Americans were able to fortify the heights. They might be able to prevent Americans from, from erecting these artillery batteries. So they put 5,000 men into boats, and these are very well-trained professional British soldiers, 5,000 of them, into boats in Boston. They put out into the water, and a big squall came up, heavy high winds causing dangerous seas. And these British soldiers are, they're in rowboats, just untenable to get across the body of water during the night in the kinds of wind conditions that came up. And the attack was canceled. This gave the Americans another extra 24 hours to work on fortifications. And that was all it took. It made it impossible to attack Dorchester Heights. Now, we can't really say how things would have turned out had the British attack succeeded. It may be that the British ended up abandoning Boston soon anyway. But the fact that the weather came in and prevented this sealed the deal at this time. It made it impossible for the British to maintain a garrison in Boston. And in fact, within two weeks, they abandoned the city. Talk about how weather affected Malvern in 1777. Okay, yeah, there were a couple other major things in 76, but we could go on and on, obviously. We'll go on to 1777. There were a couple of major weather interventions at that time. One of them was just the very delay of the British advance on Philadelphia. British troops left New York by sea, and it took them a heck of a long time to get all the way to head of Elk in Maryland. Extra weeks added because the fleet was becalmed. They just couldn't make any headway at sea. Finally, they landed, but they landed a few weeks later than they had hoped to, at the very end of August 1777. Well, once they landed, this British army with large number of British professional troops. By this time, they also had a large number of German troops and loyalist troops. They just ran roughshod over American defenders, especially at the Battle of Brandywine, which is quite famous. Major American defeat. They were moving on the city of Philadelphia now, which was the British objective. And just five days after the Battle of Brandywine, Americans had taken on a new position in the area of Malvern, Pennsylvania, and the British were just ready to attack it again and were expecting it would be no problem. In fact, it probably would have been pretty easy for British to overrun this, really, I'll call it a last-ditch defense that the Americans had set up to try to defend Philadelphia or try to prevent the British advance on Philadelphia. Early in the morning on September 16th, the forces came into contact with each other. They started to clash, and then this horrendous rainstorm drenched both armies, just made it impossible to advance. The roads turned to mud. Ammunition was soaked. Um, if you've ever tried to go out for a long walk in a really heavy rainstorm, you'll find you just can't, you can't even look ahead of you as you're walking. It becomes dangerous to walk. You get soaked in a hurry. So no battle occurred that day. The next day, both armies literally had to take a day to dry out. But this gave time for the Americans to retreat, regroup, find better positions. Just took the momentum away from both sides at the time. So what could have been another battle, just like Brandywine, didn't happen because the rain intervened. 
than one British officer is that we would have had an even bigger, we would have defeated the Americans even worse than we did at Brandywine if the rain hadn't come on. Now, of course, who knows what would have really happened, but we'll never find out because of that rainstorm. Talk about the weather at Stony Point. Yeah, Stony Point fascinates me. I hadn't learned about this one until I actually went to Stony Point Battlefield Park in New York State, which I highly recommend visiting if you have the opportunity. They have a wonderful model of how Stony Point looked at the time it was attacked in 1779. And there was a key element of the defenses that was disrupted by weather. I don't think it gets nearly enough attention. Um, Just as a reminder, Stony Point protrudes from the west bank of the Hudson River out into the Hudson, and it's a high rocky prominence. So not only if you're walking from the mainland toward the river, you not only have to go out on this point, you have to go significantly uphill to get to the top of the point. Very defensible position. The British held the post. They were fortifying it, hadn't completed the fortifications, but they had erected a nice line of obstructions that cut the point off from the mainland. And these obstructions went not only across the point, but out into the river a little way on each side. So the only way the Americans could attack was to wade through the river around the edges of these defensive obstructions. Well, recognizing that there was still some vulnerability to that, the British on the southern end, they put a guard boat. They had an armed warship with a whole lot of soldiers on board to anchor the end of that line of obstructions. You can think of having a turret at the end of your fortified wall. Well, this was a floating turret, really. But on the night that the Americans had chosen to attack, now the Americans had expected to have to attack this guard boat and overwhelm the defenders of it. This could have been a very big battle and very dangerous for the American soldiers because they're now waiting at least up to their hips, if not up to their chests. And then they have to attack an armed warship sitting in the river. But the weather turned foul that night. The winds came up, and in order to protect the guard boat from washing, from banging onto the shore or being driven onto the defenses, the crew of the boat moved it farther out into the river. So when the Americans came wading through in the pitch darkness to go around the end of the defenses, the guard boat wasn't there at all. And they were able to pass with complete quiet, no alarm raised by having to attack this vessel, no danger. And that gave a huge advantage to the force that then scaled the sides of the, scaled the steep hills up and were able to overrun the fortification at Stony Point. So it seems like just a small thing, but had that guard boat been in place, it would have there at a bare minimum, there would have been an awful lot of noise when the Americans attacked it, which would have alerted the British garrison much sooner, could have changed the entire outcome of this very important battle. We all know, of course, about the battle at Yorktown. What you have found is that weather played a significant factor in the outcome. How? Well, Yorktown was a position on the York River in Virginia, and the topology and the weather don't get nearly enough attention. If you go there today, it's not really easy to see why the British would have built, would have chosen to fortify this particular point. But if you look at the documentation from the time, you find, one, it was an important 
place where the British could support their army with their navy. And there was a lot of marshland and small rivers and creeks and things that made this one place fairly defensible. Well, if you have a little place that's highly defensible, it's also a place you can get hemmed into, which is exactly what happened. The British, the British Navy got taken out of the picture. So now instead of the army being supported by the Navy, the army is isolated in Yorktown. But they also held a post across the river from Yorktown to the north called Gloucester Point, another British position. And as a gambit, the British commander-in-chief decided that he could sneak the army out of Yorktown during the night across the river to Gloucester Point, and from there they could probably fight their way north, either to get all the way back to New York, well, that was a long way, pretty bold, but at least get into some other position where maybe the British Navy could come to their support. So they tried it, you know, the American army had made some successful escapes during the night. It was time for the British to do it too. They put a lot of their troops into boats. Once again, an unexpected rain squall came up that just made this very wide river. It made the waters too rough to pass with the kind of boats the British had. It prevented the one opportunity the British army in Yorktown had from escaping. So of course, with that escape plan foiled, the next day, the British had to ask for surrender terms. They had no other choice. Don, how does this article help us understand the Revolutionary Era better? Well, I like to say it adds in human factors that can often easily be forgotten. It's very easy to look at maps that are flat and you know they're two-dimensional. They show interesting things like roads. They show positions of troops. It's easy to look at numbers of men and arrows about where people move and forget very important human factors like how passable was the terrain? Was it steep and wooded? Were they good roads or bad roads? And what was the weather like? There's a big difference between trying to march 15 miles in the night when it's a nice clear night with a bright moon compared to when it's a cold windy night with a lot of dampness in the air and it's just miserable conditions. Um, there's a lot of criticism of the British conduct of the war in terms of being too dilatory, not following up after major battles. Brandywine is one example. Um, the Battle of Long Island is another. But when you have to think about what the soldiers had to go through to fight these battles, the idea of them saying, Let's just push on the next day, man. You, you can recognize more why that was impossible. You can't take troops and have them march 20 miles and then fight a battle all day and then be exposed in open air overnight in the damp and the darkness and expect them to just get up at 3 o'clock the next morning and do it all again. So the weather is one of several major factors that impact the performance of soldiers not the thinking of the generals and the, um, and the higher level strategy, but the ability of the individual soldiers on the ground to do the work that needs to be done. It comes into play on that level. It comes into play on how logistics are managed and can be moved. It pervades everything, and yet it's really easy to overlook it when doing 
the armchair history of looking back over time and thinking about these battles and how they turned out. Don Hagist, thanks again. <laughs> Thank you. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.